HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how delivery went from convenience to crucial. In a pre-COVID universe, the commissions from these third-party delivery service providers were really high, and you were seeing oftentimes they were as high as 30%, right? I mean, all food is about basically the history of money and the history of technological change, but takeout in particular. I'll go ring a doorbell and watch somebody come outside and wipe down their door in their doorbell after I leave. It's kind of creepy kind of weird but that's the state of uh where we are now tune in to meet in three hrn's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts You're listening to Item 13, an African food podcast, and I'm your host, Yom Akuaku. Every week, we'll delve into the delicious world of African food, including chefs, curators, and bloggers. Here's the show. So welcome to Item 13, Sophie. I am excited to have you on, one, because you are our first guest for the season, and for our debut on the Heritage Radio Network. so And I don't know much about Ugandan food, too. So I think the combination of all of that um, will make this really interesting, I think. Thank you for having me. Um, where are you actually calling in from, just so people know? All right. So I'm calling in from Jamaica. I've been in Jamaica for the past two years, pursuing higher education. So this has been a learning experience for me. That's like that's interesting. Are you able to find Ugandan food or like ingredients while being in Jamaica? Surprisingly, the food is similar. They have a lot of sweet potatoes, you know, they have maize, yam. So there's not that much difference. It's just that the cooking techniques are different. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, we'll delve more into that in a little bit. Um, and then just um, because of the time that we're in right now, I also like to check in with people in terms of how you're feeling with everything that's going on in the world between COVID and Black Lives Matter movement. I don't know if you're finding that um, BLM in particular being um, a force as much in Jamaica as 
probably will in, in the U.S. or elsewhere in the country. I think it's it's something that's happening to everyone, every black person globally, and and I've been very invested in it because yeah, I've experienced. Especially when it comes to Black Lives Matter, I've experienced racism. I'm sure every Black person has experienced this in some form. And so being on the front line has really been helpful, you know. And it's it's actually really empowering and it gives hope to people to know that the world is collectively fighting this. Same goes for Corona. We're still in the lockdown. A lot of people are working from home. Um, studying these online, so it's it's a strange time to be in. Yeah, especially being away from home, right? Do you have a support good support group? Because um, you've been there for two years. So I'm sure yes, actually, I have, have I have family members here, yeah, so actually, I have, I have it's, it's, it's not so much of a challenge. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Okay, so speaking of family, let's go back to all the way back to uh, you growing up in Uganda. Can you share a little bit about what it was like growing up in Uganda? Um, Just your first experiences, any early memories of food or any sort of major influences you think that um, drove you towards getting into the food Um, So growing up in Uganda, hmm, where do I start? Okay, so to put this into... (laughs) It's complex. But to put it into perspective, my father is a minister. He's a pastor. So this, what this means is that we traveled a lot from one region to another. So when people, when people mention childhood, That is something that I rarely relate to mm-hmm. because, you know, we're moving from place to place, Aww. having to make new friends, moving schools often. So this, I think in a way, although I didn't know by then, exposed me to different kinds of foods because even in Uganda itself, there's just not one set thing that people eat. You'll find that each region has its own different set of beliefs and new and food cultures. So... I've been to the West. I've also been to the Central. I actually grew up mostly in the Central. So I'm very well aware of the food in the Central. But then there's also food in the North, food in the West, food in the East. So I think the moving part helped me understand that. As an adult, I, I looking back as an adult, I realized that it is something that has helped me build appreciation. Cool, and then um, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of Ugandan mm-hmm. food in a little bit, but want to talk about then how all of those influences um, drove you towards like the world of blogging. Like, What was your inspiration to start food blogging? So just, just like I mentioned before, we moved a lot. So in a way, our family had these family traditions. For example, we had this special dish that my father made where whenever we had pineapple, we would not throw away the pineapple peelings but instead would make a juice out of them and then I realized that this was something very unique to our family because most families were like what you make juice out of pineapple covers that's weird that's strange so the desire to share those experiments actually the blog started as a personal blog you know where I would write random things you know personal life because I'm into journaling I've been journaling And so it was just natural to start writing about the food that 
we eat regularly or for example if we had a harvest of eggplants maybe i'll write about the different ways we cooked them it was really unassuming i had no plans whatsoever for it but then it, it grew to be pretty big right so um just in looking at the blog and um the quality of pictures, the quality of the recipes, even your own disclaimer on there about people using your pictures and whatnot. I think it's grown from this, you know, personal documentation of your experiences with food to this really, truly educational and also like beautiful to look at <laughs> work, you know, like work of, of art around Ugandan food. Um, and one of the things we, we um, talked about was um, your interest in the interco- interconnectedness of food culture around the world and interest in anthropology specifically, um, that you're interested in why people eat, eat a certain way, um, even mentioning, I think, uh, a while back when we first spoke about um, foods that were brought to Africa through the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and wondering what our ancestors were eating before then, right? Things like maize or cassava. Um, what are you still dabbling in that anthropology piece, or what's your um, experience doing that? Actually, I'm very interested in that because while I was writing about this food, the food that we knew we as millennials, or you know, the younger generation, is not what the stories mm-hmm. our grandparents were telling. So I was wondering why. The, the stories were different. So the more I asked, and I found this out by asking my relatives, my parents, my grandparents, and I found out that there was a whole other world of food culture that people had before, you know, colonization happened, before the trading, you know, in um, international trading happened. And so I was really keen on understanding why this happened and why what people actually eat because for the longest time i think and i know people are working podcasts like this are working to change the narrative african food has not been given the value it deserves and if it is when people capitalize on the products and you know own them so i was thinking we need to know we as a younger generation need to know what our ancestors eat because by knowing that we'll be able to understand why we eat the way we eat so for example where i come from we have a traditional food it's almost similar to fufu but we call it owundu and it is made with cassava they we dry cassava and then we grind it and then we we mix it and make a meal out of it and then i found out that traditionally that was not the thing People used to use millet for that but because there was a time famine came and then outside forces, outside influences introduced the use of cassava and maize to substitute for the famine. The sorghum and millet was almost removed from people's diets. So people now think that cassava is a traditional food, but in actuality, it was always millet and sorghum. So this is, I think this is really interesting to understand for a person a young person because then you get to connect the dots and understand why people eat the way they eat yeah no that is so interesting because i didn't even i didn't even realize i don't think that cassava wasn't um like indigenous to to africa well i know that is I, so true. I mean i know that um it's eaten in other parts of the world but i didn't realize that it was um quote unquote imported uh 
into our culture. And you're right about grains like millet and sorghum, and even I'm sure you know the work of um, uh, brands like Yulele that are trying to bring um, Asian grains like Fonio also into, into mainstream. And so I think that education um, is starting to happen. And I, and I personally, when I go home now, I'm trying to lean more towards like millet-based foods versus corn. Um, because it's also healthier, right? Because the, the corn that's grown uh, in mass, I don't know how much nutritional value there is in that. Um, but no, that's that's really interesting. I did not know that. That's, that's, that's interesting. Um, and so as you started to speak about, you know, that Ugandan food, maybe let's go there and talk about um, Ugandan food in general for those that are not familiar or don't know. Like my... Um, only reference to Ugandan food is to uh, matoke, which is which I also I think I <laughs> I debate this with my Kenyan friends because I think they also have the same thing where we debate whether it's it's actually bananas or plantains because West Africans we do plantains but I think in East Africa sometimes you call it bananas and so I don't know but you you can you can uh, shed some light on that so um. Just, just to clarify, I've gotten a lot of questions about this. So matoke is actually different from plantain. And, oh, interesting. Yes, and then plantain, we locally call it gonja. And then matoke, in, in English, would be green bananas because we don't usually eat them, right? They're eaten when they're still green, yes. So, um, yes, you mentioned matoke. Yes, matoke is very popular and it's almost synonymous with Uganda. And that's because... Um, in the central, the central part of Uganda, matoke is the traditional food. And so when you move towards the west, that's where you find um, foods like Ogundu, the mingled millet and cassava. And then you also find that, and where I come from, the tribe I come from is bordering Congo. So we eat a lot of plantain because Congolese eat plantain. And then we eat um, cassava leaves, which is called the uh, Sombe in my local language. And then when you go to the east, the east you find they also have a version of mixed or mingled um, millet and sorghum. As, and it's the same in the north. But then you also find that they eat a lot of... And simsim is, um, in English, that would be sesame. But they grind it oh, and okay. make a paste out of it. It's almost like peanut butter. Almost, but it's not entirely the same. Yes. When they put that in... But is it eaten like peanut butter then? Yes. Oh, interesting. Yes, they also make a lot of peanut butter. No, not peanut butter. They grow a lot of peanuts, yes. And then, <laughs> and then yes, they make peanut butter as well. And then recently I just posted, um, I just shared a dish called Malewa. Which is from the east, and it's 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 a, it's a traditional food from the east, from the tribe of Bakisu people, and it's a smoked bamboo. So, so they harvest the young bamboo shoots, and then they smoke them and dry them. So the result is something similar to smoked fish because it has that smoky flavor, and it has caramelized and browned and dried. So it really goes well with the paste, the peanut paste or the simsim paste. 
So it's it's a whole world of, of food. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. Yes. I've never so but then the bamboo serves us. Is that like the protein component of the dish then or Yes, yes. Combined with the peanuts, it really serves well as protein. And then I also saw recently like on your profile something called posho. Posho. Yes, yes. Yeah, which reminded me of like um so I lived in South Africa. It reminded me of um, what do they call it? Pap. It's yes, yes. Like it's actually a variation of pap. It's also made out of maize, but the southern the southern of Africa theirs is a bit watery. Um, not watery. I'm trying to find the right word. It's the one in East Africa is firmer, which is why you it looked the way it looked. So okay. yes, we we tend to make ours firmer. And that one was yellow, and it was yellow because I made it here, where they have yellow corn, but you, it's usually white because we grow white maize in Uganda. Ah, okay. I, I wondered about that. I was like, that's yellow. I wonder if that's a Ugandan thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then um, I also have heard people say, so I don't know if it's traditional Ugandan food, but something called TV chicken. Oh, TV chicken. Um, so, yes, that's also a thing. And I think this has, has become more popular with, you know, urbanization. And there's this belief, okay. there's this belief in Uganda that, you know, the more educated you become, you get a better job, you move to the city, and of course your meal has to change. So you'll find that people have a lot of access to, um, you know, supermarket meats, you know, things like instant chicken. You can, I mean, as, as long as you feel the craving for, for chicken or let's say meat or whatever, you, you have instant access to it, which is, was not usually the case. So you'll find that people in the urban areas eat more meat than people in the rural areas because in the rural areas, you still have to wait for the chicken to grow for about a year. <laughs> and then you have to slaughter it. And the process of slaughtering, uh, is, is excruciating. So yeah. TV chicken is a thing now, and people eat, eat chicken and meat in general more these days. That's interesting, and I think that I mean I don't. I it's probably not unique to Uganda. It's probably it's probably a phenomenon of like urbanization across the continent, right? I think I've found I've seen that in, in Accra, in Lagos, in Jobek, um, that the more uh, like you're right. So when people move into the city or the higher up they go up in the so-called social or class ladder, um, the less they are likely to look to like more traditional foods. Although, I don't know if that's changing again with some of the work that people like you are doing, right, in terms of educating people on um, the roots of our food, the indigenous food, how that's good for you, and how that also connects you back to who you and your culture. Because I think also with urbanization and globalization, there's a lot of people that are losing touch with... Um, who they are and food has the ability to bring people back to to that to that place or to that space and so I think I think it's interesting I think the work that you do other chefs do other bloggers and people in food media or African food media the growing African food media I think it might also be helping to to change that a little bit um, which is great I think uh, okay, so I think we had a good point here where we'll take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're gonna delve more into like the mechanics of 
the food blog, especially running it out of um, Kampala and then winning like global or being featured globally, right? We've done some work that's had you featured globally and so I want to be able to delve in and talk a little bit about that. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Representing 75% of the U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production, with over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. So welcome back. Um, so we're now going to talk a little bit more about Sophie's process in terms of running the food blog, especially in the context of being in, in Kampala. Um, I, I'm always, like I, I mentioned earlier, like I'm impressed with what I've seen online and knowing, you know, having lived on the continent and even going back and forth over the last few years, I know how challenging that can be in terms of creating content, um, getting it recognized, and then also like the infrastructure challenges, whether it's, you know, internet or um, power in some cases. I don't know if that's such an issue um, in the East versus what we experience in the West, but... Um, so wanted to start with talking about in terms of creating content, what's your process? How do you start thinking about, you know, I'm going to write this piece or even do a video on, on this particular food. What's your process for inspiration for coming up with ideas? All right. So, um, it starts with a long list. I have, I have a book which I've been updating ever since from 2014. So I just think of everything under the sun that I think I can write about and I put it there. And this acts as an idea bank of some sort because then if I need something, I can always go back and look at what I have done and what I haven't done. So I have that list and then I usually plan out my content three months ahead. Yes. So once I've established what I want to explore in the next month or so, I will start slowly collecting. For example, if I want to do a video, then I'll start collecting. I'll start visualizing how I want the video to flow. Maybe I'll write it down. Most times I don't, although I know I need to do that. <laughs> and then I will also start visualizing the image I want people to see. So this will also include selecting the kind of dishes I will use kind of um, background that we use and so as time goes by I slowly start filming so the post I recently posted I've been conceptualizing it from April <laughs> so so it started with with creating the video and after creating the video I changed that into a written post and then I also photograph it as well and then I schedule it, I make sure I edit the photos and everything is ready to go on its scheduled time. So it's a long process. It's, 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 it's an, 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 a never ending process because 
once that is published, that means I'm already working on something that's to be published probably the next right. month or something. So it's non-stop. I can imagine, and I I think I, I think you have your your mind probably works in the same way that I do in terms of being like super organized and. Um, I like to think I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds like I'm very process oriented. So I I get I get that. Um, I get that sense because it also gives you peace of mind. I feel it's me at least. I know that when when I plan it all out. Um, but it sounds too like you're naturally creative. Do you think you're a naturally creative person? Because I mean, you talk about it now as a process, but also that you know that inspiration coming up with ideas, even the photography piece of it. Like, where did you get the skill set to be? You know, that because you take your own food pictures, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, so where did you where did you get the skill set? And I know you also teach people. I think I saw on your website that you have an academy that you you teach people the skill sets yes. too. So how do you how did you develop that? I don't I didn't go to school for I didn't go to culinary school, although I wanted to, but I realized it's not practical. And I also don't have any training in photography. So everything I've learned I have learned on Google. Oh wow. And I think it's the best way to learn because the more I learned, the more I improved the blog. So if you actually go back to my previous earlier posts, they really were horrible. But I think the more I do this, the better it becomes. So I taught myself how to do photography because I used to notice that Western blogs have really well curated blogs with amazing photography. And I wanted to be able to do that, but for our own food, because I think it's important for people to be able to see themselves in something to adopt that idea. So, for example, there's, there are times when I've, I've photographed um, amaranth, which we call dodo in my country. I know in Nigeria it's plantain, but that, that ability to be able to photograph that in, a very, in an appealing way has made people think, oh, I didn't think of that that way. And it has made them think twice about, you know, the things that they take for granted. So it's very important for me to have really captivating visuals. So I taught myself photography and I remember starting out a neighbor had a camera and I used to borrow it every week oh, wow. <laughs> to take pictures. And he never understood what I was doing. But I always told him that maybe something will, maybe this will pay off in the future. And I guess in a way it has. And then when it comes to writing, I've always been interested in writing. I keep journals. I always make sure I write. So writing has not been hard for me as a blogger. And I've been, as, as a blogger, I've been able to build that and, you know, become better at it. And then the other things, for example, setting up the website, I just love that through trial and error. There's so many times when I have deleted things. And we uploaded them. It's 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 an interesting That's journey. So impressive. Like Saul taught everything. That's really impressive. And we talked like I mentioned earlier about um being in especially since you said, you know, you had to Google a lot. I'm sure I'm sure you had to watch videos too. Um yeah. I'm thinking about yes. in Uganda and I don't know how much internet costs there, but like in Accra and even like when I lived in Joburg, it was insane. I don't know how you manage to to do that unless of course if you work with brands then they are probably compensating you for for all of that but in terms of starting up and doing that you were just doing that out of you know your own interest in that but was it was it a challenge it was oh my it was a challenge it was a big challenge actually i remember 
many times wanting to quit because it didn't make sense. The only thing that really helped was that when I did this, I was at university. So the university had Wi-Fi. And, and so as soon as I finished classes, so what helped me was creating in batches. So I would plan out the next three months, do all the photos and everything. And so when I finished class, I'd go stand on a tree. Because that's where the Wi-Fi was found. And then upload everything. <laughs> upload everything. Upload everything. Um, and then I remember I used to listen to podcasts a lot um, regarding blogging just so I could educate myself. But it was not possible. So what I would do was to um, download the show notes, the podcast show notes, and then read them. That was the only way I could actually listen to the podcast because... You know, subscribing to yeah. a podcast and download it, downloading it was very hard. Yeah, and then, ah, internet is really tough. And then to make it even worse, they have imposed a tax on it. And it started in 2000, I think, 18, which it's already hard. But then I think this has made it even harder, which makes it harder for people to access things online. And it's really sad because... For me to be able to get where I am solely by being on the internet, I think there's a lot of, um, the internet has a lot of power when used pro- properly. So I think something needs to change in our countries, honestly. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I'm seeing a lot um, these days. It just seems like there's a lot more countries that are cracking down on internet use or cracking down might be strong i mean in some cases that's what it is but in some other cases they are just making it more difficult for it to be accessible you know and like you said like a lot of what you built here you built because you had access to to the internet um and it's 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 quite unfortunate and i mean like i can mention this now so based on all of the work that you did one you were featured on cnn african voice like how did that happen um to be honest, I don't know. I think it had something to do, <laughs> to do with the hashtag. Because I remember then, I had just created a Twitter account for the blog. And it took the longest time because I was so afraid. I didn't want people to see what I was posting then. And then I finally caved and I created a Twitter account. And I remember I used the hashtag CNN food. And then all of a sudden, I got an email in my inbox. It was, it was so random. I don't know how it happened. Well, it happened because you did the work, right? You've been doing the work and the quality of your work shows. So that's amazing. Um, <laughs> I remember you. going, like, I remember being at home and watching CNN African Voices or something. I watched quite a bit and I always wondered how people got on this. So that's like to go from, you know, mm-hmm. doing your own personal experiences to getting featured on CNN and even being um, nominated um, uh, the mm-hmm. magazine Saver. Yeah. That was also very interesting. How did that happen too? Actually, it was my sister who pushed me. She was like, nominate yourself. You never know these things, you know. And I think we never really expected it to happen. So I remember I entered my <laughs> my blog details. And then I told all my family members to, no- to, to nominate <laughs> me. And that was it. And then I remember sharing a post on Instagram about being nominated. But I honestly didn't expect anything. So when, when the nominations came in, and I was part of the nominated blogs. It was really mind-blowing. Because, you know, these, these were the, the magazines I also used to look up to when I was starting out. Yeah. And I used to wonder, how do people get on these magazines? How do people get to write or even just get a nomination from these magazines? And it happened. 
And then before we sort of switch gears, you also mentioned that you created a support group just based on everything you've learned and the things that you've done over the last few years. You created a support group for um, other food bloggers. Yes, yes, I do. So this is something I started last year in November. So I had reached a point in my blogging journey where I realized that there's still not that many Ugandan people in the food media. So, for example, brands would reach out, and that was when I was here in Jamaica. So brands would reach out, and they're like, hey, we'd like to work with you. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not available. And then they'll ask me, okay, whom do you recommend to do the same kind of work that you do? And honestly, I could not come up with a name. And I thought this is a problem. This is a big problem because there needs to be, I'm sure there are people who are interested in this field and I'm sure they would need someone to hold their hand. So I looked back at when I was doing this and I was, you know, I was doing it blindly. I didn't know what I was doing. So I thought, you know, creating a support group would be the first step so that people can know that, you know, they can always reach out if they need questions on something, um, how to <clears throat> excuse me, how to negotiate with brands, how to reach out to brands. So that's how the idea started. And then we have this Facebook group and we also have a mailing list where people sign up and they get resources and they ask questions and I ask if I can, if I cannot, I research or I reach out to people who can help and they answer questions they have. That's cool. Is it is this um is the the information on the support group available on your website so if people are interested they can join or are you at capacity? <laughs> yes, there's there's an opt-in where people get two resources when they sign up. So they get yes, and it's called one resource is called five places to source your pops for people who are interested in food photography and the other is called a blog diagnosis guide which helps them assess their blog so they can know what they have to work on to get to where they want to. And yes, and then I am hoping to grow this into an academy where I share what I have learned in forms of courses so that people can, you know, have the opportunities I had because blogging has opened so many worlds for me, that's for sure. Yeah, and one of the things you've done is also publish or self-publish a, a few ebooks, right? So um, I've seen one in particular that I was most interested in, but you can talk about the, you know, all of the books that you published is the vegetarian book. And I found that particularly interesting because um, I find that traditionally, and actually you even mentioned earlier that a lot of people, <laughs> A lot of people, like, we really like our meat. We really like our animal protein. So I was very um, surprised and interested to find out, like, why you chose to go um, vegetarian for that one particular ebook. And then maybe you can talk about your self-publishing process as well. Um, so the reason behind, the thinking behind this ebook was to, to normalize um, having vegetables as meals and this was coming from, you know, the Ugandan context, what I talked about earlier, where people believe and think that, you know, the higher you climb the social hierarchy, some of the things have to change. So you find that people eat a lot more meat, um, people consume a lot of dairy, and it is not bad in itself, but there needs to also be an appreciation for vegetables. And so this book is aims to bridge the gap between that. So I wanted to present it in a way that looks um, trendy 
appealing and appetizing to people to want to eat their vegetables. Yeah, that's basically it. And it was also important that these are vegetables that are Ugandan vegetables, a Ugandan person can actually access. Because one of the hugest, one of the biggest concerns when I was starting out as a blogger was that, you know, some of the things you want to make, some of the things that are appealing that you really want to try out, the ingredients are not available. So let's say if you want to make, um, let's say, uh, a sandwich and you want to try a salmon sandwich yeah. or something, something like that. You know, finding salmon is very exotic in Uganda. So I wanted yeah. these things, um, these ingredients to be easily accessible. You know, things a person can just go to the market and access and then do the magic and voila, they have something to eat. Could you tell other people, could you tell the listeners what other books you've published? So it's not just a vegetarian book. You have other um, e-books that you've published. Yes, yes. I have um, two additional e-books. One is called um, 16 Dishes to Try. And this is to introduce um, non-Ugandans to Ugandan food. So it has simple Ugandan dishes, you know, that every Ugandan can identify with. And then the other one is called Seasonal Cooking, which was made about five years ago. And this one includes, again, Ugandan-inspired dishes. Oh, and amazing. this one also won the World Cookbook Award, the Gourmand World Cookbook Award. So you can you yeah. <laughs> so you can get all of those there on the blog. You can get them on the blog. Oh nice. Uh, that I didn't know. And they are free. That's amazing. And they are free? Yes. Oh wow. Girl, you need to be monetizing that. <laughs> I I will, but I wanted people to know too. And this this is a token of appreciation for me. So those yeah. two ebooks are free. Oh no, that's that's a lot of work. I mean you're super incredibly knowledgeable and at some point and that's a conversation I've started to have with a lot more people about um value and worth, especially in, in you know, we talked earlier about the BLM movement and people being taken advantage of in, in a lot of food spaces actually. Um but no, good for you. That's that's great. Um so what's next for a kitchen in Uganda? What plans do you have? Um, I have a lot of things in the works, but for right, right now, I'm focusing on the blogging community because I think it will be this something I want to leave behind aside from the blog is, you know, other people who can also tell their stories. So I've been able to tell these stories because I had the means to, I had a supportive family. And so I want people to, because I'm sure there are people out there who want to tell similar stories, even better stories. So I want to equip them or empower them just to cheer them on to do that. So I really want to grow the community. And I'm working on a course, which is going to be released at the end of this year, which, you know, talks in depth about, you know, the whole blogging business and everything. And yes, and then I also have some more books in the works, but I cannot talk about them right now. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. We'll be following your work online. So when you when that's ready to be shared, um, we, w- we will know. So actually, before we transition to the rapid fire questions, can, let, can you let people know where they can find you online on social media, your website? Okay. So I have a blog. It's called akishaninuganda.com. It's very simple. And then you can also find me on Facebook 
and Instagram and YouTube under the same name at Ichen in Uganda. Great. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to do the rapid fire segment here. They are super easy questions. Um, actually, if I had known you were in Jamaica, I, I didn't realize you were in Jamaica for whatever reason. Um, uh, I would have put some Jamaican IRA questions here, but, uh, but we'll just go with my standard rapid fire questions. Okay, so the first one is coffee or tea? Tea. That's an East African thing, right? I feel like there's a lot of uh, tea preferences yeah. out there. Surprisingly, though, my family brews coffee. Oh, no way. Yes, and it's funny because it's grown for export, so we never really had much time to... I have not had time to actually have coffee and enjoy it the way people do. So tea is more... It's easier for me because I knew it. That's, yeah, that's true because you guys also grow coffee out there too. That's interesting mm-hmm. for your preference for tea versus coffee. Um, I think I know the answer to this one, but I'll ask anyway. Instagram or Twitter? I think I prefer Instagram. Yeah, I already imagine. This is because it's visual and most of the, the work I do is visual, so Instagram. And also my Twitter account just got suspended, so I'm not on Twitter anymore. Suspended? Why? I don't. I don't understand. I just woke up one day and the account was gone. So I don't know. I'm trying to resolve it, but I don't know. Jeez. <laughs> oh my goodness, gosh. Um. Okay. Um. Starter or dessert? I prefer starter. I'm. A, I like salty food. Yeah, as good as that. Probably not a sweet, sweet tooth there. Um. And then when you're feeling lazy, what do you cook? Oh, at this. Okay, there are two things. I cook noodles. <laughs> okay. I know, it's, it's obvious. And then there's this other food called katobo, which the English translation means literally a mix of things. So this can, can range from anything. It can be Irish potatoes and tomatoes, or if you have some meat, you can add that into it. You can put anything. It's, yes. yeah. it's, it's easy and it's boiled. So, you know, you just throw things in a pan, boil, and that's it. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. And then um, your favorite African or local restaurant in, I don't know, anywhere in the world, I guess. It doesn't have to be Uganda. Um, anywhere in the world. I think the best place to test the best local food for me is, you know, you know those restaurants which are downtown restaurants? And, you know, this is, this is where, you know, the everyday person eats. Usually those places have hidden chunks yeah. of food. Yes, so th- those are the best places to go. And the food is actually cheap. And the portions yeah. are good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of street food. I think of in Accra, I think of Chobas or Bukas. Yes, um, yes. I forget what they call them in, in Jobek. But yeah, that's true. It's cheap and it's good and it's big portions. Um, so that's it. That was easy. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time. This is a pleasure chatting with you, learning about the Ugandan food landscape and all the good work you've done, actually, in this space in terms of um, us, giving us free resources, and then also creating community so that other people can learn what you do and also grow and their own brands from, from the work that you've done, learn from you and the work that you've done. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening to Item 13, an African food podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. To keep up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Item 13 Podcast. Item 13 is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.